Turn, if you would, over to Psalm 15. As we turn together to this passage, I think this is a helpful question for us to reflect on, this question that David starts the psalm with, and I believe ends the psalm with in a slightly different fashion. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And when we think about those words that he's using, consider the fact of David longing to see a temple built for God, and yet the temple was not built in David's day. And so when he says tent, he's thinking specifically of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Some have said that David is talking literally about the idea that there were certain people whose lives were spent basically living in that tent, some of the Levites whose job it was to care for the various articles of the tabernacle and and those sorts of things. But I don't think that David is saying who can physically live in this house as if it's a house. He thinks that he is emphasizing that it is God's house and there's this question of who is qualified to approach God in that house. But not just a temporary approach, but who is worthy to spend time dwelling with God in his house. Uh, One of the things that we were discussing at the uh, workshop that I was at last week was this idea that it is easy for us when we come to a passage like this in the Old Testament to immediately jump and say, but no one can do this. We need to uh, trust in Jesus through the gospel. And at one level, that's true. But I think that sometimes jumping to that truth too quickly until we've really looked at what the psalm is saying or the passage sort of blunts the force of the expectation that God has for his people. So let's start by looking at the first uh, thing that God says about the person who can uh, dwell in his tent. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And I think verses 2 and 3 are paired together. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Uh, The parallel between he who walks with integrity and he does not slander with his tongue, I think is a little bit less clear than the other two. But think about the person who walks with integrity. In other places in the Bible, this is translated with the idea of being above reproach, that someone is... Uh, trustworthy, faithful, and you can't really speak evil of that person. As we consider that, as we consider the author of this psalm, we ask ourselves, where was David at in his life when he wrote this psalm? Was it before or after his great sin with Bathsheba and arranging the murder of Uriah and some of the other uh, foolish or sinful choices that he made at various points in his reign? And if it was after any of those things... How could he, sort of with a straight face, say that this is the expectation of someone who must approach God? I think certainly the requirement that is laid out here is made all the more intense when we consider the failings of David's own life and when we consider the failings of our lives. 
are any of us with a measure of integrity that there is nothing that anyone could raise against us? I mean, I think all of us, whether it be a small thing or a large thing, have something that calls into question our integrity, our whether or not there's something that, that, that could be called up against us. But look at the next phrase, and works righteousness. And again, we want to sometimes, I think, rightly jump to the idea of and works righteousness and that righteousness is only possible because of Jesus' righteousness and it comes after we're saved. And those things are true. But let that sink in. The one who can approach God is one who does what is right, who works righteousness, depending on what translation you're looking at. Do we do what is right? If we know what's right and we don't do it, the Bible says clearly that that's sin, right? And yet, often there is a disconnect between our knowledge and what we do. And I think in most Bible-preaching churches, that's really where the problem comes down. It's not, do you know enough to please God? It's, are you doing the things that please God? Love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds easy until we realize how much we actually love ourselves to begin with. Love God with everything that you have. And yet so often, we love God with a part of who we are. But to actually work righteousness, I like to think of righteousness this way, I was hanging a rail in the hallway uh, to help Maggie walking back and forth down the hallway. And putting something on a wall so that it's straight and level is difficult in most of our houses because the ceiling is not straight or the floor is not straight or both are not straight. So how do you know when it's straight? You need a level and you need some kind of a measure to line up your marks. So what I did was, I measured from the floor to the spot where the screws needed to go. I did the same thing on the other end. I put the brackets in the wall, I put the rail on, and it was like this. Somehow, the tape measure had slipped or something like that, and it had deviated from being straight to being off from being level. What is the person who works righteousness? It's someone who conforms to the standard that God has established according to his character. When we think about that, we tend to think about things are right because they're just right. But things are right to the degree that they conform to God's character. And what conforms to God's character doesn't always match our expectation of what is right or at least of what we want to be the case. That doesn't mean that it's completely arbitrary. God is certainly consistent in his character. And yet, God's righteousness does not always work in the way that we would expect. The point of that is not to say that God does evil. It's simply to say that when we accept God's righteousness at the standard by which we must live, we're giving up a measure of control. We're giving up the right to say, 
But I think it should be this way instead. Because if it's what God is, if it's what God does, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And this is a challenging thing to think through because sometimes we don't understand how what God is doing is right and sometimes we don't feel like we can do what God expects us to do that he says is right. And yet it says the person who's going to approach God is one who works righteousness. And then that last phrase, and speaks truth in his heart. It's a fascinating way of expressing it because if we see, say someone speaks truth, we tend to think someone speaks truth, we would expect it to say with his mouth, to his friend, something like that. But it says in his heart. That's significant, I think, because as we come into the New Testament, Jesus looks at these sorts of requirements that the Pharisees and the Sadducees also looked at, and they looked at it, and they saw the rule. Here's what I have to do. And Jesus said, wait a second, you're missing the point. What is the point? The point is, yes, here's a rule to follow, but you're not going to follow it in the way God wants you to follow it if you're not right with God in your heart. And following it outwardly is no substitute for having a relationship with God that flows out of the heart. And so speaking truth in your heart, I think, is a more fundamental issue than speaking truth out loud, because sometimes we can say the truth out loud and the truth is not in our heart. But sooner or later, what's in our heart does come out, certainly, as, as Jesus points out in his teaching. How is the next phrase parallel to verse 2? He does not slander with his tongue. What is slander? It's sort of the opposite of he who walks with integrity. He who walks with integrity is, I can't, no one can speak evil of me. Doesn't slander with his tongue is, and I don't speak evil of everyone else. I was wrestling with this when we were looking at it today. When I was looking at it today, not we. When I was looking at this earlier today. Because in the process of selling our house, we got very frustrated with the lender who was supposed to be processing the loan for our buyer a process that would have normally taken 45 days on the long end, ended up taking something like 70 days. And the basic reason seemed to be he was just bad at his job. What's the temptation? And this was something I was really struggling with because those last few days before everything got finalized, I was ready to get on Facebook, to call up the CEO of his company, a bunch of other people, and say, this guy needs to be fired because he is incompetent. And I had to stand back when I was thinking about this passage today and say, do I know that that's true? It seems that it's true, but I know that it's true. Am I willing to make this an issue that is the most important thing associated with my name and... Is it the thing that's most important to undermine his circumstance? I still feel like that there's something that's wrong there that needs to be dealt with. But it's 
very easy for us, and this I think is where uh, Romans 12 comes in. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Basically, it's not our job, because what tends to happen? If this is justice, we want to go way over here. Or if this is justice, we try to meet it and we fall short here. God's the only one who can hit the mark both in terms of restraining his anger to accomplish actual justice and has the ability to actually come to this point and accomplish it. How does that factor into slander? The things that I was thinking in my heart and mind, if I had written them out, probably would have been slander. Because what's slander? Slander is speaking evil of a person for the purpose of destroying their reputation with the added caveat of that are not entirely true. And if I don't know all of the facts, it's quite likely that the thing that I would say would be not entirely true and I would be committing slander. And all of us are tempted to do that over a variety of circumstances. This business didn't live up to my expectations, so I'm going to leave them a terrible review. And maybe they actually fixed the problem, but I'm still going to leave them a terrible review. That's probably one of the more common ways it comes up, but I'm sure you can think of other examples where this might occur. The flip side of being beyond reproach yourself is not lying and reproaching others, particularly when you don't have all the facts. Nor does evil to his neighbor. If he works righteousness, that means he can't be doing what is wrong to his neighbor. Perhaps the greatest way that we do wrong to a neighbor would be the act of murder. Think of Cain and Abel. But what led up to that? It started with simple things like jealousy and anger, which I think is why Jesus makes the connection between those things in the New Testament when he says, if you hate your brother without a cause. And Cain probably thought in his heart and mind, I have a reason. God accepted him and not me. I'm the older brother. I worked really hard. I should have been accepted. But God said, if you don't take care, sin is crouching at the door. That, I think, is the same sort of thing that we have to keep in mind when it says, nor does evil to his neighbor. Am I saying that failing to obey this principle means that you're going to go out and murder someone tomorrow? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that that's the end result of a long road that some people travel faster than others and some people never get to the end of. But those things are all connected, this doing evil to a neighbor. And if you think about it, this is the opposite of the summation of the law that Jesus gives in the New Testament. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Where does doing wrong to a neighbor fit? It doesn't. Don't do evil to your neighbor. This desire to do evil to a neighbor can arise from a variety of reasons. Some of them seemingly justifiable, and some of them completely petty. Sometimes it could be something like, and if we think of neighbor, Jesus defines neighbor more broadly, anything, anyone that we come in contact with. But even if we just thought about our actual neighbors, just think about simple things it could be. This person never picks up their trash, and it's always blown over in my yard. It's not the voice of experience. It's not my neighbor, it's the businesses across the road. But at the old house that I lived at, 
It was my neighbor. And I got really frustrated with them. And I wanted to do them wrong. And that was a wrong attitude for me to have in my heart. Um, what are some other ways that this could work out? You fill in the blank. This desire to do harm to another person has a variety of sources. But it's incompatible with the sort of person that can stand in God's presence. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. We looked at this uh, Sunday morning and Sunday night. This is the same sort of language that is used of bearing false witness other places in the Bible. Think about Ahab. Think about Naboth. He didn't do it directly, but on his wife Jezebel did it on his behalf. And the nobles of the city where Naboth lived, who should have had his back, who should have been accomplishing justice, arranged to testify falsely against him. That sort of behavior does not fit with someone who wants to come into God's presence. Verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. We have a, a kind of uh, contrasting parallel here. A reprobate is despised. Reprobate is used in various ways in the Bible, but essentially it would be the idea of someone who's wicked. And we perhaps struggle with a phrase like that and say, well, but we should love your enemy and all those sorts. Yes, but... What's David's point? Do we recognize that their sin is sin and recognize that it offends God and have a proper attitude about that sin? And how do we know that that's what he's getting after? Because the flip side of it is, but honors those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, fear the Lord in other passages as the beginning of wisdom. It's basically a parallel phrase to those who call upon the Lord. How are people who follow God described in the Old Testament? Those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who fear the Lord, those sorts of phrases describe the person who follows God in the Old Testament. Do we despise the wicked in a right and proper sense? Do we honor those who are righteous, who have a relationship with God? It's easy, potentially, for us to see the advantages that the wicked sometimes have in this present world and to esteem them far more highly than we ought to. To envy them, to seek to uh, use a relationship with them to our advantage, to have some particular gain. I think of, um, I think of uh, Onesiphorus, I believe is the name of the man that Paul refers to in 2 Timothy. This is not an Old Testament example, but I think it illustrates this idea. Paul's in jail in Rome. Onesiphorus goes, finds Paul, publicly associates with him, and thereby honors someone who fears the Lord, despite the personal cost to himself. Do we have that same sort of attitude toward God's people and toward those outside of God's family? He swears to his own hurt and does not change. I don't know if your Bible has this cross-reference. 
But the example that first comes to mind, rightly or wrongly, is that of Jephthah in Judges. And I've always thought that Jephthah actually followed through on his vow and sacrificed his daughter in sort of a, uh, a perversion of the Old Testament sacrifices. And my reason for thinking so was that uh, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes in the book of Judges, and so that would fit the context. There's two obstacles to that perspective on what Jephthah did. The first is God's attitude toward those who keep vows, despite personal cost, which is expressed in this verse. The second one is Jephthah is listed as one of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. I'm not entirely convinced that this is a right understanding of this verse, but it's something I think that we should consider, and that is, if we make a commitment and it comes with great personal cost, do we honor God by following through on it? In Jephthah's case, the alternative explanation, instead of him sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering was rather that he was that he uh, set her aside to God to serve God indefinitely and that's why there's those references to and she remained a virgin and she never had children so essentially if that interpretation of what happened in Judges is correct Jephthah cut off his own family line because of the promise that he had made to God it's something to think about. I'm not sure that that's the correct interpretation, but it's something to think about. Even aside from that, that particular story, think about what it says in Ecclesiastes. It says, think before you vow, and if you vow, keep it, because God will not take it lightly if you don't keep what you vowed. It's very easy for us to rationalize getting out of promises that we've made. Anything from like really little things all the way up to really big things. Let's start at the small end of the scale. I said I was going to meet my friend for dinner on such and such a night, but I really don't feel like it, so I'm going to come up with a reason that I came up with after I promised to go and give that as the reason why I can't go. So sort of like, I already committed to do this, but I'm going to try to get out of it by coming up with some sort of excuse that's really not a good excuse. I just don't want to say I don't want to do this anymore, so I'm going to sort of come up with this idea. That's like the, the short end of the scale. What's the long end of the scale? People who rationalize leaving their marriages or things like that because they say, I'm not happy. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now I recognize that there are circumstances in which the marriage relationship is so devastatingly broken that it certainly seems impossible for it to continue. And I'm not talking about I'm not talking about circumstances where someone is being beaten on a daily basis or taken advantage of in various ways like that. What I'm talking about is the person who says, I'm not getting everything that I thought I would get out of this relationship when I first began this relationship. And so I need to come up with a reason why this person is going to give me those things I'm not getting in my marriage, and I'm going to give up on it. I think a, a phrase like this certainly speaks to that kind of a situation. I think 
aside from the obvious one potentially of marriage, I think there's a lot of commitments that we make that we don't hold as highly as we should. When we make a commitment to join a church, a lot of people view the commitment to join a church as a Sam's Club membership. I might get tired of Sam's Club, I want to go to Costco. No big deal. That's how you spend your money, it's up to you. But if we make a commitment to a local assembly of a church, there may be ups and downs in that church, and to the extent that that church is still faithful to God, I think we should pause and say, do I have a really good reason for leaving that assembly? And a lot of people don't think about that. And I raise that not to talk to any one of you specifically, but just to talk about a general attitude that we tend not to be very good at making commitments today in our society, and I think that this verse speaks against that. Verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest. Fortunately, none of you work at a bank or we'd all be in trouble. No, That's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is that in a variety of passages in the Old Testament, God commanded the Israelites not to charge interest to those who required a loan. And part of that, I think, had to do with the fact that they were supposed to treat one another like family. And there's something that rubs us the wrong way. If we had a family member who was in need, we said, you know what, I'll loan you 50 bucks, but when you give it back, I want 60 next week. And I realize there's a variety of circumstances in which there has to be some sort of a, uh, not a penalty, but a seriousness about a commitment. Our situation is not parallel to that in Israel. The specific reason that was going on here was God had said, don't do this. And so if somebody says, I know God said not to charge my fellow Israelite money, but I really could use some extra money right now. I really could use whatever. It's not just about the money. At that point, it's about what's his attitude toward God's law. And that, I think, is the main thing that, that this phrase is getting at. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Again, if someone is in a position to accomplish justice, and he says, you know what? Getting a kickback from someone who can help me out is more important than doing justice for this poor person who can't do anything to help me. I think that's the sort of idea that's in, in mind behind this phrase. So he doesn't take advantage of the person in Israel who's having a hard time. He doesn't take advantage of the person who's at a disadvantage in the legal system if he chooses to sort of make up his own rules about what's right and wrong according to who can pay him the most. We take all of these things together... They paint for us the picture of someone who, in David's mind, is worthy to abide in God's tabernacle and to dwell in his holy hill. Zion, Jerusalem, a variety of ideas along those lines. What's his, how does he sum this up? He who does these things will never be shaken. This, I think, has a parallel to the question he asked at the beginning. Who can dwell on the hill? This sort of person can dwell on the hill? He'll never be shaken. Why? Because he is meeting the expectations that God has. He's a citizen. Your Bible might have something about it, a citizen of Zion. And I think that David is talking, even though he's speaking figuratively of those who dwell, as in not the Levites, 
I think David was probably thinking specifically, who of the children of Israel is worthy to stand in God's presence? And again, we, we sort of want to say, but, but you can't do that without Jesus, and none of us are worthy. And those things are true, but I think it still is worthwhile us asking this question. Do I walk with integrity, work righteousness, speak truth in my heart? On the opposite side, do I slander other people, do harm to my neighbor, bear false witness against a friend? Do I despise the wicked or love them? Do I honor God's people or hate them? Do I make promises and keep them even when it's costly? Do I choose not to take advantage of those who are in need even though it would bring me benefit? These are questions I think that we ought to wrestle with. David's response is, if these things are true in your life, he who does these things will never be shaken. Go now to our time of prayer.